Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 23rd of November 2020 and this is episode 185. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to author and historian Dr Malaya Hampton. She is a historian in the military history section at the Australian War Memorial. Today's interview examines her research into the Anzacs on the Western Front and her two recent books, Attack on the Somme, the First Anzac Corps and the Battle of Poissier Ridge, 1916, published by Helian, and her second book, The Battle of Poissier, 1916, published by Big Sky. Malaya spoke to me over the phone from her home in Canberra. Hi Malaya, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yes, my name is Dr Malia Hampton and I'm a historian at the Australian War Memorial. I've been interested in the war since having lessons on Gallipoli in year three in a rural South Australian town. And um, I guess um, I, well, I've carried that interest through becoming a veterinary nurse and moving to Britain and being a backpacker. And then I discovered that most of my holidays I was spending in the battlefields and the last one went for a month and I had a car and a tent so I could save more money and see more cemeteries and I thought if I'm if I'm my holidays are following casualty clearing routes out of the western front by following the 50th battalion maybe I should study this properly and I started reading more academically I read Robin Pryor and Trevor Wilson's Passchendaele while I was on the western front and that changed my whole approach I was then suddenly realized you don't have to describe the war as futile and pointless all the time they were intelligent people trying to achieve something that didn't necessarily work but I was became very interested in the operational conduct of the war as a result of that and here we are. We're going to talk about Anzacs on the Western Front. What was the nature of the formation and how many Australian and New Zealanders were fighting on the Western Front in the First World War? Well Anzac is born out of the Gallipoli campaign which is when the Australians and the New Zealanders form the Army Corps which gives Anzac its name that we all know. They named Anzac Cove Anzac Cove in honour of this new formation. But after that, the, the Australians and New Zealanders don't necessarily fight very closely together. They tend to drift apart as the New Zealanders lose more and more men and the Australians coalesce into their own corps. By 1918, the, Australian has, the Australians have an Australian corps like the Canadian corps. The Australian contribution to the Western Front is five divisions of men. One and two split, the first and second divisions split in half after the Gallipoli campaign to form a trained nucleus to create divisions four and five. The third division um, was raised as a specially trained unit in Australia and for um, quite a while was considered the special buttercups of the AIF Um, and then they all come together as I said in late 1917 to go on to conduct the 1918 battles together as a single corps instead of being shunted between 1st Anzac Corps and 2nd Anzac Corps for the rest of the war. And what sort of operations were the Anzacs involved in on the Western Front? Um, The big ones I guess they are part of the British Army so they are participating in the in the British uh, campaigns Um, 1916 they participate in the Battle of the Somme and also the later Battle at Fleur that's the last gasp they um, attack the Hindenburg line in early 1917 at the at Bullecourt and they're involved in um, fighting around the outpost villages there they're at the Battle of Messines in the middle of the year and then they, they participate 
um, in some of the battles of Passchendaele, Menon Road, um, Brood Cinder Ridge, those sort of things. And then 1918, obviously, they're involved in all of the major ones again. Let's go right back to the beginning and, and sort of look at what an area that you've written about. And this is the um, role of the 1st Anzac Corps in the capture of the French village of Poitiers during the 1916 Somme Offensive. In particular, you've written about the role of uh, its commander, Lieutenant General Sir Hubert Goff. Can you tell us about that? Uh, and it may be, maybe useful just to start with a bit on what the operation was around Poitiers and who Goff was. Okay, so um, Hubert Goff is um, an army commander on the Western Front. He is um, someone that it's okay to dislike on a personal level as an army commander. I find historians really don't warm to him as a person. He is described with all sorts of horrible adjectives like thrusting and ambitious and, you know, he, he's a he's not a cuddly creature and he rubs people the wrong way. Um, he rubbed people the wrong way at the time. He rubbed people the wrong way 100 years later. And he was very popular with Douglas Haig. So he has this astronomical rise of a career where he um, takes a, a cavalry brigade to France in 1914. And by 1916, he's commanding reserve, the newly formed reserve army. Um, obviously, we know um, the Battle of the Somme is launched by the by Fourth Army, but Goff is agitating all the time for something to do. And he's given this little patch of ground on the left flank of the main Somme offensive around Pozières as Fourth Army shuffles across and makes a little space. And he's allowed to do some stuff, I guess, would be the best way of putting it. He's not allowed to interfere with the main campaign over to the right. And he's not allowed to, um, you know, really do anything too far to the left. He's got to maintain contact with that that barrier, that boundary with Fourth Army. But he is allowed to, to indulge his um, aggressive um, desires and start attacking the Germans in this area. And what he uses to do that is first Anzac Corps, so which is which is comprises four Australian divisions. Get that right? Three Australian divisions at the time: first, second, and fourth. So those those four divisions are about to give Goff his legitimacy to expand what he's doing in that small area on the Somme. So this is around the village of Poitiers. And um, what actually happens in this in this fighting? Well, the great Australian myth is that the British had attacked Poitiers a number of times. Which that's not a myth. That had happened, and it had failed a number of times. The great Australian myth is that the Aussies walked in and just took the village and then it was amazing um, and, and but the first day at Pozieres is good it's a solidly planned battle on the 23rd of July 1916 First Anzac Corps captures the village the trenches leading up to the village and the village most of the village itself over the next few days they clear the Germans out of the village and are ready to face the Germans in, in the OG lines which go at the back of the village and are in fact the German main line in that area so it, it's been this um, sparkling little victory in Australian lore about the war, which, you know, is not necessarily, is certainly not fair to say that the British couldn't capture it and the Australians could. And it's certainly not um, representative of what went on over the next six weeks because the Australian attacks at Pozieres, they turn towards the OG lines and they start failing very, very badly. And it, and then they head towards Mouquet Farm to the north and the failures get worse. And to the, to the point now where um, after the war, the, the Australian official historian said that um, that ridge is the most th thickly sown with Australian blood than any other in the world, the Pozier Ridge. So it, it becomes, it quickly turns into a disaster. And why does it turn into disaster? And it is Goff to blame for this um, situation? Yes, no, it's 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 somewhat complicated, I guess. And um, it, it certainly starts with Goff. Hubert Goff is not just um, ambitious and thrusting and all of these other words. He's also an incredibly impatient man. And he just wants things to hurry up, get moving, get moving, get moving, get moving. And to that point, he is visiting headquarters and giving people different ideas and giving them unrealistic 
logistic deadlines to launch attack, trying to launch attacks without artillery in the right place, launching attacks without, you know, doesn't, I would say, not looking at anyone's orders, checking that anything makes sense. Core command is somewhat absent um, in any sort of practical sense in the, during these battles. And um, so he is starting that sort of hurried, um, panic, panicky sort of, that sort of hurried, panicky sort of approach to organising battles and conducting an offensive is not helping anybody to get anything right at Pozier. And from there, you find divisional commanders are making mistakes. Core command is definitely not helping. Um, Birdwood is not particularly effective as an operational leader. And and from there on, there's not a lot that the man in the in the front lines can do to resurrect what becomes a bit of a dog's breakfast. So it becomes a, a an example of bad operational planning, which obviously is your area. And what do the, what do the Anzacs take from that in operational terms and apply to future battles? Well, I have to say, um, the next series of battles, they go away and have a rest and come back down and conduct a few series of battles at um, Fleur just in November 1916. They do not demonstrate any learning. They are conducting them across Quagmire. They don't have appropriate artillery barrages to support their attack. I'm, I'm struggling to find, you know, useful lessons that have passed from one to the other. And so what I'm doing now is taking a very clinical look at the Bullecourt battles of early 1917 to really pull them apart and see what happens there because um, that's the next place for obvious demonstrations of learning going on. And does Pozier still have that sort of mythical status in Australia? Oh yeah, yes, yes. And um, in in part because we captured this village and in part because there are so many dead Australian boys there. So it's a it's a curious mixture of pride and sorrow and it is a, it was and remains an absolute achievement that the Australians captured that village. In the overall picture of the war that didn't end up meaning very much I guess. So I, I tend to rain on people's parades when it comes to that but they are quite right to be proud of that as an achievement. Talking of myths the Anzacs have often portrayed themselves as being very different to British soldiers in terms of having mateship or this idea of mateship having much more relaxed discipline and also a fierce reputation for being very effective fighters. Is this just legend or is there some truth behind it? Yeah they, yes and yes. Um, there's again somewhat complicated question absolutely the Australians started to realise that they weren't as British as they thought they were when they came to fight the war. As an example as an Australian my great-grandmother referred to England as home and had never been there and uh, but had relatives in England in on Salisbury Plain actually strangely enough that um, her dad went and visited but they you know she never went she'd never seen it her parents never went and never saw it but they referred to it as home as well so there was a real sense that Australians most Australians were white European and probably British descended and possibly first generation or recent migrants so um, there, there was a real sense that the Australians were British and then they got there and they kind of weren't they didn't fit they didn't have the same manners the weather was all different and they realized that actually they weren't British and this place might not be home and so there was that one sense but then there's also what what happens on the battlefield is what happens with everybody and that is they look over the shoulder at their neighbours and if something's gone wrong it's not their fault it was their neighbours fault and you have Australian battalions blaming each other for what goes wrong in the line and if they get it right then they're blaming the other division on on whatever side and at at the biggest like macro level they're blaming the Poms or the Welsh or whoever it is that they're, they're having problems with at the time it's not their fault it's somebody else's. And where do you think this idea of mateship comes from? It's always sort of fascinated me as I've got an interest in sort of small group cohesion. Yes, well, there's. Um, it's been a long... Um, it, it, the Australian idea of mateship has long predated the First World War. It's not born out of the war. Um, there's some suggestions that it sort of comes out of um, Australia being a particularly hard place to live. If you're 
going to live in the country in Australia, you need mates. You need to know where your mates are and you need to rely on other people. Um, and so there was a sense that, you know, we're all mates and cobbers is another word. Cobbers get on and um, get on and do it together. And so sticking together is a natural way to cope with the, that sort of like intense experience of living in the desert or being on a battlefield or, you know, it's a coping mechanism. And so they take great pride in their mateship and it became part of their own personal um, legend about themselves. But I think it's just born of difficulty and, and the way that they've had to live. Now, by January 1918, a German intelligence document is captured, which ranked all the divisions in the BEF at the time. Now, the first and I think second and third and fourth Australian divisions, I think along with the New Zealand division, were ranked as top units, but I probably have to check the source. Why do you think that the Germans thought they were so good and, and what, what made them so effective in, in sort of operational terms? Well, that this is actually a much more complicated question, I think, than it sounds on the surface, because we often muse about or talk about who was the best infantry or what makes the best infantry or were the Australians really the best? No, they couldn't possibly have been, you know. There's lots of talk about what makes the best infantry happen, and it's not necessarily that easy. And I think it's more helpful, perhaps, to look at the line below, which is what makes infantry bad. Like, if we're looking at it, what makes them lose their morale and and not be effective. During the war, commanders were very interested in the morale and the efficacy of their own troops. So the Germans weren't just looking over the fan, over the wire and, and trying to rank who was opposite them. The, you know, they were looking at their own and trying to work out who their crap troops were. And, and our side were looking at their own and trying to rank each other. I, I've seen um, lists that John Monash, the Australian Corps commander in 1918, made of who he considered to be particularly good battalions and who he thought the South Australians get a bit of a bad rap, which is sad for me as a South Australian, but doesn't mean anything in the long run. You know, like they want to know who's the best and who are they facing. And when you're fighting a war, that's really important because if you get your men across the line, you want to know how vicious they're going to be. The Australians took a great deal of pride in taking no quarter when they came into contact with the enemy. They wanted to fight them hard and they were um, like grubby little trench fighters. They took great pride in fighting with knives and clubs and, and really coming to grips with the enemy in the trenches. As historians a hundred years later, should that matter? And, and my contention is if you're looking back, it doesn't matter who the best infantry was because they're super easy to get rid of with a machine gun or two, right? So if you are looking at like just infantry, if you take the first day of the Battle of the Somme, no one is going to claim that the infantry made a mistake that caused those casualties, are they? Like there's something over the top that makes the infantry not even have it the first chance. And that's what we need to be looking at when the infantry are negotiating their way in a battlefield. There is so much that they have to have go right before they can live to come to grips with the enemy in the trench opposite. So they have to negotiate. Um, they have to have an army or a corps commander who can plan an appropriate artillery barrage and um, deploy their tanks correctly, make sure they're kitted up with the right amount of stuff, make sure they're fed and watered and supplied. Um, but, you know, they need to be able to work in this um, weapon system that they are walking into that keeps them alive, that gets them across no man's land. And they need to know how that's going to move, what their role in it is and how it's how it works and time-wise as well. And the Australians are very, very good at that as well. They're not just, by 1918, they're not just sticking together as mates and getting the job done. They're educating their private soldiers that this is the battle, this is what we're going to do. We've mocked up a diorama so you can see where you have to go and what you need to do in this next battle over actual landscape. Um, and so if your NCO is not, the private soldier can pick it up. An NCO can take up a company commander position. They can, they can slot into each other's positions because they are professional and they 
understand what they're doing. This is um this is what the British Army learnt to do. And as a historian who primarily at the moment is dealing with Australians on the Western Front, um, I find I found a really useful source of understanding what the British Army learnt to do as a whole because they're a discreet um, little bunch of divisions who stay largely stay together who kept all their paper at the end of the war and then they wrote it all down. So they're the best example that we can use of what the British Army was capable of doing, but they're not necessarily the best the British Army could produce, but they're certainly a very way to, very, very good and useful way to look at it. So when you actually look at the ANZAC Corps and maybe compare it to the Canadian Corps or, or a British Corps, are the way that they conduct operations different and what shapes those differences? Yes, they are. Um, one of the um, one of the defining characteristics of the British Army is its um, laxity, I guess, in um, taking orders from above and then passing them down and letting them go. So you often see um, a divisional commander issue orders and two brigade commanders who are operating under the same division side by side interpret them quite differently, and that's acceptable. So if that's happening at you know brigade level, it's happening at corps level, it's happening all throughout the British Army during the war. It becomes slightly more homogenous as the war goes on and they start to get a very distinct idea of what works and what doesn't but there is still lots of room for differences and this, this is a great area for future study for some scholar but looking at the different ways that cause the different cultures of applying wars what they like to rely on do they like to write their artillery plans a certain way how do they like their lift how do they like to deploy their men those sorts of things are different but what there are things that can't fail on the battlefield and your artillery is one of them if your artillery barrage is um, inappropriate or inadequate then your battle is almost a fail that's obviously got lots of exceptions but you know in the bigger your part of the weapon system is the more you have to get it right and then the infantry has to function within that they can't change that very often at all they can't they can't walk into something that doesn't exist there are there are times where that is um, notably different for example on the 31st of August in 1918 the Australians attacked Mont and Quentin which is on the road to Ron, a little pimple of a hill and they don't have their artillery up in time and the guns don't have any hope of ranging in time their artillery barrages look like a 1916 mess they are they've just got blobs on a map they've got no hope of hitting anything um and the infantry because they've got such a short objective and up a hill um they actually replace their artillery barrage using their own rifle grenade um so they know what's missing from their weapon system and are able to replace it with what they've got to hand so they're still not they were told to attack up the hill screeching like bush rangers but they still use the heaviest ammunition they've got to hand to keep the Germans down as they're advancing up the hill. It, it shows a great deal of understanding how this networked sort of application of firepower is working on the Western Front. The best infantry can harness that to, to their advantage while they're um, attacking in any situation. I suppose a really interesting comparison is looking at sort of units that arrived newly onto the Western Front. I'm thinking about the Americans in 1918. Did the Americans and the Australians serve together? And if so, how did they work and function in an operational context? And can, is it possible to see this sort of the evidence of the learning curve versus the novice? Yes, the Americans are a um, very particular case when they come to the Western Front because they are quite determined not to learn any of the lessons that have been very hard learnt over the preceding three years or so. Um, Pershing, the American commander, says that the, you are not to you're not to take on these European methods. He you know he believes in Elon or Esprit or you know fighting. You get your morale up and your men can take out anything. And so it, they have a pretty poor attitude and at the same time they are taking in British, Australian, Canadian and French officers into their units to teach them things that they're, they're then told to ignore. So it's a very strange situation.
Nation. The Australians first come across the Americans um, on the 4th July at the Battle of Hamel um, when they are training some Americans and Monash has been agitating, much like Goff had two years earlier, to conduct an attack in his area. He's a new corps commander and he really wants to capture this village. And he puts together this attack that, you know, every Australian knows is the, the attack that started the one that won the war on its way to winning the war. Hamel is a really shining example of what can be done with a set piece battle. Uh, Monash is an engineer who plans everything, you know, to the minute. It's supposed to run for 90 minutes and it's, the village is captured in 93. Um, and there are some Americans training with the Australians and Monash can't help himself. He's just got to use them. So he has, um, I think, four companies of Americans that he uses without permission during the attack. They are inserted into the Australian um, unit and the Australians think they're great. They're very effective and the Australians find them very useful. Um, but five months later, at the end of September 1918, they're fighting with the Americans to capture the Hindenburg Line. And that is a different situation because the Americans are fighting as regiments on their own with their own commanders. And then the Australian divisions are to leapfrog through ground that the Americans were supposed to have captured. What they discover is the Americans have launched this attack into fog. They don't know where they are. Most of their officers have been killed. They are finding machine guns that have been captured by the sixth American soldier with all the bodies of the rest lying on the ground because they're just attacking with people. They haven't mopped up appropriately, so they are having Americans drop um, German soldiers pop up from behind them, and it's a real mess. The Australian infantry are able to enter that battlefield and sort out the mess. They find the Americans, they send stragglers back, they take competent ones forward with them, and they know where they should have been by now and are able to fix the battlefield so it's working the way it should have been. And so that that's two instances where the infantry can work quite differently um, and where competence is an important difference in what happens. The American army is not displaying competence to fight as a unit in that situation. The Australians have an abundance of competence and can walk in and into a mess and sort it out and keep moving. None of that matters because the 46th British Midlands Division on the flank has had its part of the canal blown flat and surprisingly what is considered an average division is able to breach the Hindenburg line just through sheer firepower and able to follow their guns on their own. So there, there is a point at which the infantry are completely at the um, at the mercy of what the firepower gods are allowing them to do and the firepower gods shone on the 46th division you know that day so that that that's the real difference I think there should be a lesson there to learn and my, my penultimate question is just going back to um, one of these um sort of long-standing myths it's about sort of officer men relationships within the Anzac forces and the idea that discipline was poor certainly by British perceptions is there any truth in this um there there is some truth in that uh, the Australians certainly like bait of British soldiers. They, they did not approve of, you know, they, they quite liked um, appropriate shows of military deference on the battlefield, but they did not see why they had to do it in Amesbury. That was just ridiculous. And so, you know, they like to bait them a little bit and, you know, get a bit carried away. But when you look at the AIF as a body of men, you, you've got the whole gamut of men. We've got um, superheroes and Victoria Cross winners and, and um, alcoholics and wowsers and murderers and you know, it's, it's, take any large number of young men and we had the whole gamut in that. It was very common to call your officer Mr. Jones, like you use like his his surname, you wouldn't use his first name. So it's not necessarily the mateship we would recognise today. And when they were doing the business, um, the military discipline came right back on, on point and they were actually very proud of showing military, dis military discipline in the field. But when they were behind the lines, they saw no use for it whatsoever. And finally, Mel, where can 
people learn more? Um, obviously, we've got Christmas coming out. This has um, been broadcast in the late November. So where can people learn more and maybe uh, fill some stockings? Well, of course, you could always read a lot about Pozier. Um, I think I know of a good book. Um, my book is published through Hellion Press, um, Attack on the Somme, First Anzac Corps and the Battle of Pozier Ridge. Um, I would encourage people to have a look at the new stuff coming out from the Wolverhampton military series. They are um, fabulous and have useful books of chapters that are some of the most up-to-date scholarship on, on the subject at the moment. Um, and also the British Journal of Military History, which is free online and, again, is some of the cutting-edge new research available. Mel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.